Everyone will be starting shortly. Welcome, everyone, to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and podcaster and other stuff. Uh, you can check out my other podcast, Blocked and Reported. Um, if you're new to this, please check out the back catalog. I, I think you'll see some stuff from recent weeks that, that you might find interesting. Uh, I'm obviously hoping more and more people will find out about this and, and pass around the back catalog uh, just to help grow the show and so forth. Okay, my guest today is Batya Ungar Sargon. Uh, she's the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek. She has a new book out as of October, I think it was, called Bad News How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, she and I are going to have a, a fairly brief discussion and then we'll uh, open things up for questions. Uh, I guess I just want to say up top that I, I really like this book and I was a little bit jealous of it because I think. A huge number of the blowups going on within media institutions really do come down to to class and education and to the fact that this is more and more uh, a field for people from backgrounds like mine, from from fairly affluent ones. And uh, I think that has had a lot of consequences, and um, that's that's why I like the book. So, Batya, let's see if I can successfully unmute you, or uh, are you able to unmute yourself? Hi, Jesse. Hello, welcome. So thank you so much for having me. I have to start by saying that I'm jealous of you because you are one of the bravest journalists that I know. Um, you regularly uh, fight down the mob, but with a kind of grace and a plum and calm and kindness that is so instructive. And you are a person who supports people in their moment of need in a way that so few people do. And I have to say that one of the things that gives me the most hope when I'm on Twitter is seeing your following and how devoted your following is to you, because it makes me think that there is really a market and an appetite for the kind of courage and the kind of goodness that you have and that you bring to our industry at a time when we really need it. So all of which is to say, thank you for your moral leadership in this space, in addition to obviously your genius and your brilliance. And thank you so much for having me today. Don't forget how handsome I am. Come on. <laughs> no, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, uh, I'll, um, uh, I, I, We'll talk about this some other time. I don't. I, I the reason I um, feel weird about like the courageous part is just because this is mostly Twitter bullshit, and and there are people in like war zones and stuff. But I really appreciate it, and I get what you're saying. Um, but um, we'll do another episode where we talk about how great I am. Let's get let's get to your book. Uh, I, I really like some of the sort of early parts where you talked about the history of journalism, especially like sort of early to mid twentieth century. Um, what, was there one particular? moment or episode you really liked that you thought really sort of set the stage for the more contemporary stuff you were going to talk about? So I don't think I could say I liked it, but uh, the book opens with what I consider to be sort of a primal scene uh, of today's, of the moment that I'm describing. And the scene goes like this. It was a CNN panel. And as soon as I describe it, you guys will all know, like, you know, this the, 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 it, this is totally ubiquitous now. Um, the panel was, it featured Don Lemon and Kirsten Powers, who are worth $10 million and $25 million a piece. And they were sitting there um, doing the usual CNN thing. Thing, which is sort of sneering at 
um, all of Donald Trump's uh, supporters and voters. And of course, Donald Trump won 67% of whites without a college degree. And that move of them sitting there sneering at these people, you know, Trump, you know, the number one predictor for where Trump would win was how many deaths of despair there were in that county, right? Them sitting there sneering at these people and then justifying that sneering by calling them all racist. That is that is the move that, um, you know, really in a nutshell that that I think emblematizes uh, the the phenomena that I'm describing in my book, um, woke media and how it's it's basically being used to abandon the working class or rather to justify liberal media and, and liberal Americans abandonment of the working class that used to be their base. I have many questions about that, but I, I do want to just dip uh, briefly into the sort of earlier history you cover, especially uh, in New York City, where uh, I should also add that if you guys have questions, feel free to get in the queue now. We'll get to you shortly, and I'm going to leave a lot of time for questions. Um, in sort of earlier golden eras of newspapers, there were times when it was like pretty well established which was the newspaper for rich New Yorkers and which was for sort of the poor ones, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the points that I make in the book is that a partisan media is not necessarily a bad thing as long as everybody is represented, right? So there's a time in, you know, early New York uh, journalistic history, you know, let's say the 1920s, where there were so many communist newspapers in New York that you could be a communist and have four newspapers that you would never dream of looking into, right? Because you talked about how they copy, right? They all fought with one another. They're four exactly, exactly. And, you know, the golden era of journal, American journalism, it, you know, really the start of what we consider to be American journalism, I argue, was in the 19th century when there was um, just an explosion of populist papers called the Penny Press, which cost just a penny. And essentially, they were by, for, and on behalf of the working class and the poor, essentially the masses. Um, and they were created by guys who showed up on the scene and realized that, you know, all the newspapers hitherto had been for the elites, but the masses could read. America was like the first country in the world where you could stop a stranger in the street and be reasonably sure they could read. And they just didn't have a newspaper for them. And so a bunch of sort of pioneers, Benjamin Day and then Joseph Pulitzer were like, what if we made a newspaper that was for the poor? I mean, there's so many of them, right? We'll for sure get rich. And they did get rich. But I would say like, but it's really exactly like you noted, those papers were not, um, you know, quote unquote, objective, they were not nonpartisan, they were extremely partisan on behalf of the masses. And I think that if today we had a journalism that was thriving, that represented the, the working class, the middle class, it we wouldn't be so bothered by the fact that our media is polarized. The truth is that it's polarized, but it's polarized on behalf of the elite. So you have conservative media that's very, you know, much representing, you know, the top 5% of conservatives. And then you have the liberal media that's very much representing essentially the top 10% of liberals and nobody speaking to the, 90, the rest of the 90% of Americans. It, it's a complicated, over-determined thing, but what's sort of like the elevator ride length explanation of how it came to be that journalism is so dominated by people, uh, not only with college degrees, but increasingly college degrees from, from better colleges? Uh, so it's one of those things that happen, you know, slowly and then all at once. Um, uh, it started around, you know, the 60s, 1964 was the first year that the majority of Americans were get, said that they got their news from television. Now, what happens when you have television, when you have a new medium like that? So the newspapers can't just tell you what happened, right? 
because you can get a more immediate sense of that by turning on your TV. So they started to feel this market pressure to add something. So by the 1970s, uh, newspapers had become more interpretive and less descriptive. Um, then you had the Watergate scandal. Now, what happened with the Watergate scandal was that, more importantly, actually, you know, the movie about it, right? Suddenly, journalism looked like this, you know, glamorous endeavor. Until then, it had really been considered a kind of high working class trade, like a blue collar job. Most journalists didn't have a college degree. You know, you would have people like JFK who would work on the Harvard Crimson while he was at Harvard, but he would never dream of becoming a journalist because it was considered a very lower class job. Right. But after that movie, suddenly, you know, it, it, it became, you know, there's people started to see it as um, a profession that maybe could have a certain level of fame and glamour associated with it. So, you know, a higher class of, of journalists started to apply, then they started to ask for more money, then an even higher class of journalists started to apply. So you saw that happening over the 70s. And by the 80s, um, American journalists had already become one of the most the most highly educated uh, industries in America. Now, they weren't rich at that point. It wasn't like today where you have, you know, essentially have to come from money and you essentially end up in the top 10%. That really happened around, you know, the death of local journalism and the rise of digital media, which, of course, you know, 75% of those jobs are on the coasts. So journalists now had to come to the most expensive American cities and be able to work for, you know, $25,000, $35,000 a year while living in New York, which meant that, you know, you had to come from money in order to do it. And then, of course, with the collapse of the industry, uh, places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR could afford to be much more selective in who they were choosing because there are so many fewer jobs. And instead of being selective on behalf of what makes for good journalism, they decided to use that selectivity and pick for people who had gone to like the top 1% of universities, essentially. Yeah, I, I just in terms of my own sort of uh, journalistic upbringing, I just I can't and I've said this a lot, but I can't emphasize enough how I would not have been able to break into journalism if I hadn't had the lack of debt and the family support to do, um, I think, a couple unpaid internships. And they led directly to my first job, which was very little money. If I'd had to just sort of support myself from the start, it, uh, my career would have been DOA. And I am. Um, it, it's a serious problem in journalism because, I mean, as as you talk about it, it leads to some really weird stuff. And and the one incident that I thought you really nicely dug into that I found pretty alarming at the time was um, in 2020, uh, the the top of the New York Times opinion masthead is basically ex explodes because James Bennett is forced to resign. Uh, his deputy, Jim Dow, is reassigned. This is because they ran that infamous column by Senator Tom Cotton saying the National Guard should be sent into cities where looting and violence were out of control. He did... Uh, one of the strangest things here is the Times, I think, repeatedly misreported what their own column said. He did not say that like peaceful protesters should be shot. Um, but I sense you, you, you also felt this was an important moment, given how much space you gave it. What, what does that moment tell us about the Times or journalism or, or these? You know, it was one of those moments that um, really encapsulated for me the way in which the New York Times is um, – was not um, making a series of errors um, that it would correct for, or that the New York Times was not, you know, like um, making mistakes that it would recognize were mistakes and then, you know, try to do better, but that this was really the new DNA of the New York Times, this kind of um, uh, woke media, as I call it, um, but that they that this was kind of, this was a, a feature, not a bug. Is that the expression? Um, it was really the fulfillment of the 2014 innovation
Publication Report, where the incoming, now current publisher, A.G. Salzberger, had written that he wanted his journalists to become social media stars and where he wanted the Chinese wall separating editorial from business and from audience development to come down. And essentially what you saw with the Tom Khan op-ed was his star reporters then taking their social media power and forcing their own boss to make certain personnel decisions according to their preferences, as well as the deplatforming of not just anyone who's going to vote for Trump in the run up to what the New York Times kept telling us was the most important election of our lifetimes, right? They didn't run a single op-ed by a Trump voter or somebody explaining their vote for Trump. But, but you know, the, the view that Senator Cotton had been expressing there was one supported by uh, 60% of Americans and 38% of Black Americans. And all of those voices were now considered to be you know, outside the mainstream as it was being defined by the paper of record, meaning it really exposed who the paper of record was for, which was highly educated, affluent liberal elites who are very, very extreme in their views on, you know, on race, much more extreme than black and Latino Americans and, and who are very extreme on their ideas of like who gets to have a voice in America. Basically, the whole argument that I make about undermining democracy is that we're in an oligarchy now where they believe there should be rule by expert, rule by elite. And that was really a great example of it yeah also ju- just the spectacle of like everyone not everyone but a dozens of time staffers tweeting in unison that the the column put black staffers in danger it, it was just very strange because i never really no one could really explain exactly how it could be that that put them in danger and i think ben smith later reported they said that more for um uh, almost labor law reasons because they wanted to make it a workplace safety issue. Um, but just seeing journalists tweet something that doesn't seem to be true and that maybe they didn't <laughs> believe, I, I just found it alarming. It's super alarming. And, and in unison, and one sentence over and over, hundreds and thousands of times, like our job is to think for ourselves, as you know, Jesse, because you always think for yourself. You never allow anybody to tell you what to think or how to think because that is our Except job. For- <laughs> Right, except for Katie. Now, listen, I um, I am enjoying this so much hearing about your favorite parts of the book. But, um, you know, you told me that you were going to tell me the places that you disagreed with me. And I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's well. So I have a couple of criticisms. Well, not criticisms, but critiquey questions. And then we have two people in the queue. So I'll I'll do these. And then I think we'll have a good half hour for questions. So more people should awesome. hop in if you have questions. Um, there were a couple of times I basically... Here's a quote from the book. Thomas Frank asked why white working class voters were voting against their own economic interests. But in 2016, when they voted in their own economic interests, those in the media called them racist. Uh, There were a couple other points in the book where I thought you were sort of a little bit too soft on the idea of Trump, like actually representing the working class and wanting to better their lives. Because I, it seems like he, he was good at this, like, con artist act of saying he would help the working class and he definitely captured certain frustrations but uh i mean what do you think about that so i'm gonna have to disagree with you on that um but it's such a great question and i I, i'm so glad you gave me the opportunity to answer it um so to me trump's economic policy was very much uh in line with what bernie sanders was pushing in 2015 he had a very protectionist 
economic agenda. That is something that, you know, I, who consider myself basically a socialist, am very much in favor of. And he kept doing things that I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that was on my wish list. Check, you know, get rid of NAFTA. Check. Trade war with China. Check. You know, tariffs on imports. Check. You know, um, sign the most pro-labor trade deal America has ever signed. You know, bring back American manufacturing. Check, right? Enforce the border, which used to be a democratic position, right? A position that anybody who is in favor or sees themselves as on the side of the working class, on the side of low-skilled labor, as I do, you know, believes we should have a strong border so to protect working class jobs. Check. You know, and 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 it's not just, it wasn't just the policy agenda that I think was extremely successful, but it it wasn't just the perceptions of the working class is what I'm trying to say. You know, the, the huge support he got from the Latino community in 2020 came from the working class. And these people, they know what's in their pocketbook at the end of the, the month. And, and the Wall Street Journal reported, the only ones to report, that uh, in 2019, the bottom 25% saw a 4.5% wage increase, which, you know, we hadn't seen in decades, as opposed to the top 25%, which only saw a 2.5% increase. So I, I do think that the, you know, the receipts are there, that his economy was working very much in a very literal sense on behalf of the working class. But Jesse, I have to say, even if it weren't, even if it was bluster, I, which I, I hope I, I was convincing that it wasn't, but I think that the reason that we were, the reason that the that we see these deaths of despair, the reason that the working class is so downwardly mobile, to me, is because we outsourced all of these great manufacturing jo- jobs to China, to Mexico, because of this disastrous bipartisan, you know, free trade trickle down nonsense. Um, and and I think that that really was a direct result of journalists abandoning the working class as they became part of the elites. And essentially what they did was they signaled to politicians, you can send these jobs overseas and we're not going to make a big fuss about that. And the reason they weren't going to make a big fuss about it was because they were now in the elites. They now lived in Park Slope. They now didn't have neighbors who were working at those factories that now exist in China and are now creating a middle class in China instead of in America. So that that would be my answer. I don't know if that's convincing. Um, I, guess I, 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 I think there was a lot of like, I do think a fair amount of it was bluster. I'm I'm not going to even pretend I'm I'm uh, qualified to wade into trade policy, but but you know things like his um his tax reform act, which I I think there's a fairly overwhelming consensus that that benefited wealthier people and wealthier corporations, and and I guess just a lot of his um to the extent he had economic policy, it just seemed like fairly. The stuff he actually did seem fairly straightforward GOP. Or are you saying because of the, the trade war and stuff like that, that that went away from the sort of neoliberalish consensus that we should have more free trade and, and more open borders? Absolutely. And that's why you didn't hear about it. That's why nobody knows about it, because the Republicans wouldn't report on it because they hate this stuff. Right. They believe in the free market, free trade crap, the trickle down crap that, you know, the lower taxes. Right. And the Democrats couldn't write about it because they didn't want to praise him because he was a sworn enemy. I I agree with you, by the way, Jesse, I don't think that he you know, I'm not like praising Trump. I don't I think he's you know, he's obviously like a you know, the deeply, deeply flawed person who doesn't care about anybody but himself. Like he, I don't think he sincerely cared about the working class, but I think he saw working class issues as central to his success. And I think he platformed them and he made them feel seen. And I don't think, I think that's not nothing. He made them feel seen and he made that, he put their economic agenda back on the table after it had been taken off the table by both parties for 30 years. And I I just think, you know, it's not really, to me, it's not about crediting him. Maybe you're right. Maybe in the book, I gave him too much credit, but I do think a lot of those policies were really working really well. In fact, some of them, you know, like remain in Mexico, that, that, 
that Biden initially came in, you know, guns blazing, getting rid of. Now they've had to put back. Um, let's take the, the first caller. I'll save my other uh, more minor critique for the end. Colin, what is up? Hi, Jesse. Hi, Batya. Um, thanks for coming on, too. And thanks for hosting this, Jesse. I've been looking forward to, to this episode. Um, so the, the Tom Cotton... Um, the Tom Cotton piece in the New York Times was a really good example of sort of a disconnect between pu uh, public opinion and sort of elite opinion. Um, what I'm wondering about is how journalists being sort of part of this elite class affects how how they cover or or how they cover um, other elites. Kind of an example that comes to mind is I think Vicki Ward. Um, Vicki Ward did a story about uh, Jeffrey Epstein and what was in reference to Ghislaine Maxwell um, said something along the lines of uh, how much she liked Ghislaine Maxwell and how impossible she was not to like. And she, I mean, she was doing a story about a sex trafficking of minors scandal with Ghislaine Maxwell's boyfriend, and it seemed almost, I might be trying to read the tea leaves a little bit here, but it seemed a little hobnobby um, that this affluent uh, woman who went to a, a prestigious university um, seemed to have a lot in common with this other very powerful affluent woman. Um, and maybe didn't hold, maybe didn't hold her up to the same kind of scrutiny that um, a more working class kind of uh, yeah, but kind of well, journalist would it what, would have. But whatever you think about this instance, I mean, what what do you make of the more this hobnobbing issue and this whole issue of covering people from your exact same social mood? Yeah, Colin, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's a huge problem. And um, I think if you look at the Brothers Cuomo scandal, it's super interesting on that front because there it was a sort of literalization of exactly what you're talking about, Colin, where you had like they were literally brothers, you know, one using his star journalistic power to protect the other who had, you know, star political power, which he was using to, you know, sexually harass his uh, employees and then, you know, essentially kill seniors and, and the development mentally disabled. Right. But but it was it, so there you had this literalization, but actually it was a literalization of a much bigger problem, which is that journalists as part of the elites now go to the same elite schools as the politicians that they cover. They live in the same elite neighborhoods. They go to the same parties as them, you know, and it's just totally this big hobnobbing thing. And and I think that you see the class bias so much in the coverage of other elites. You know, we'll see how much juice this insider story gets that found that all of these politicians were essentially invested in Pfizer and Moderna and masks, et cetera, making money off of the pandemic. Like, how far is that story going to go um, that when there's so little uh, impetus to cover other people who remind you of yourself and you look exactly like and you dress exactly like them and you live in the same neighborhoods, you have the same education, as opposed to, you know, striking workers at Kellogg's, striking workers anywhere who we have so little in common with at this point that their stories never make it, you know, they may never make it out the gate. And I'll, I'll just give one more example from the Cuomo story, which, you know, maybe this is controversial to say, but 
Um, the story of the seniors who Andrew Cuomo had essentially signed their death warrant, that got very little coverage, very little outrage. He certainly never would have been run out of office over that. It wasn't until stories came out of women like us, women who were, you know, highly educated, um, you know, meritocratic elites who accused him of sexual harassment, which is something a lot of us have experienced. And we could see ourselves in them. Suddenly there was blood in the water and everyone was out there gunning for Andrew Cuomo. And I I think that's a real problem in terms of like who who deserves who we feel quote unquote deserves our attention. It's much it's much easier for us to imagine ourselves as you know a, 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 an ambitious young woman being horribly sexually harassed. And I'm not justifying it horribly sexually harassed by her boss than it is for us to imagine ourselves as you know a developmentally disabled person who's a ward of the state who doesn't have family taking care of them who has no money you know who is literally at the mercy of the state who the state has signed our death warrant and I, you know it's it's both in what what we cover how we cover and what we don't cover, you know, crime. Why don't we cover crime? We don't cover crime because it's not happening in our neighborhoods because we don't know the victims of crime. And because of this moral panic around race that makes it uncomfortable for liberals, you know, white liberals to talk about these issues. And in so doing, we essentially sentence the most vulnerable Americans to live in this horrific way where their children are being killed. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's that's a good point that it took a me too story to to make uh people really shine the light on the the dead seniors. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Carl. I just want to try to get yeah, through as many uh, callers as possible. John, what is up? Good day, guys. Calling from Australia today. Really hey. appreciate you guys doing this. Great conversation. Um, I've got a kind of a two parter. Um, first of all, Batya, what do you think caused? this kind of overwhelming shift of journalists towards um, towards being almost purely elites. And I remember listening a lot to uh, Matt Taibbi speak about his father, who was a kind of working-class journalist in his youth, and kind of he's representing that point of view where he's become a bit politically um, homeless uh, in recent years as the media has shifted in this way. Um, and also, how reversible is this trend given the way profit motives have moved in journalism. Let, let, Bacha, if you don't mind, let's start with that second one, the reversibility, because I think we did address the um, the. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming, John, and for your question. Um, I'll just add to the causes that I think that this move towards highly educated elites is very much happening across the Democratic Party, and it's very much speaking to a deeper class divide in America, but also, you know, across the developed world, world as the economist Thomas Piketty has shown. So I think that those pressures are, you know, very much, they're, they're much broader than just journalism, although I think that journalism has definitely contributed to it. Um, in terms of the reversibility of it, the problem is, is that um, the the crap that these um, that we, the highly educated journalist elite, have brought into newsrooms from um, our you know universities where we studied you know critical race wokeness and and so forth, um, that stuff is it's profitable. I mean that's the problem is the New York Times is making a lot of money um, first you know going all in in this war against Donald Trump and now going you know woke, broke for woke. So the I don't see. Um, I don't see, despite this huge consumer boycott of the mainstream media, I don't see um, the reversal of these pressures, you know, anytime soon. I advocate for more consumer boycott. And I know that's a funny thing for journalists to say, but I think that um, we on the left, we liberals have uh, replaced 
spirituality and community and religion and caring for each other with information, knowledge, um, education, you know, going to these fancy schools. And it's, it, you know, the only jobs that are really sort of creating a path, you know, for, for, for uh, upward social mobility and economic mobility are information age jobs, which are extremely rewarding. Um, and so I, I, I feel like there, we need to get out of that mindset. Like we, we, we as consumers of the news have to take back our power and refuse to allow the news to keep dividing us um, and making money off of that. Because I really don't feel hopeful, John, that there's like any, any, you know, there's no economic incentive to turn this around. And so I don't see that happening. Can I slightly push back on that last bit? Because I I think, um, I I forget who said this and (laughs) my brain's not working. I forget if this was public or something someone said to me, but they said um, a year or two ago that, it's crazy that every outlet isn't trying to replicate the Joe Rogan model of just sort of long, freewheeling conversations with a wide variety of guests. And tell me if you disagree, but I feel like in certain senses, things are like opening up a little bit, like such as the New York Times uh, hiring John McWhorter. I, I think you pretty clearly can make money going the more quote unquote heterodox route or even the Atlantic, like hiring a wide range of voices for its, its newsletters. Don't you think there's some? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Two Jews trying to out pessimist. I mean, I feel very hopeful about America. I just don't feel very hopeful about the New York Times. I mean, yes, obviously, it's great that they got John McWhorter. Kudos to them. But McWhorter is he really, really, really hates Trump. And I think that that is, you know, to me, like, the the important thing to be creating is that, you know, bipartisan populism like right-wing populism that trump really embodied and left-wing populism that nobody embodies (laughs) but um you know the the you know it's not about elites like you know i I love john mccorder i love his work but it's extremely elitist he calls wokeness a religion because he doesn't really understand religion because he and and he'll say this you know um and and i think that that's that's kind of the wrong approach i mean obviously god bless him like he's so important in terms of getting the elites off of the woke train but uh, to me, it's like a little bit like leaning in on one of the fundamental problems, which is this sense of, you know, being better than, you know, the people that we have abandoned, namely the working class. So I, to me, it's sort of like ha- the way that the New York Times could turn this around would be to get, you know, voices in there of people who don't have a PhD who teach at Columbia, who are just like, look, you know, I, I actually, you know, I and every single person I know think this thing or that thing or, you know, to get, you know, a working class black person to 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 talk about, you know, what 81 percent of black Americans think instead of getting defund the police every week at The New York Times. So I don't I don't know that they like the 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 the, the problem here is like that the what Joe Rogan represents is fundamentally anathema to the New York Times's view of what good journalism is, which is, you know, elite, um, you know, circumscribed, gatekeeped, right? Like, um, and it, it's just, uh, to me, it's not an accident that they're sort of leaning super heavily into six, seven, eight million Americans who call themselves progressives and nobody else. It's like, that's where they want, that's whose money they want. They don't want anybody else's money. Right. Uh, do you, do you see Batya anybody actually doing this well? Can you give an example? Of oh yeah, like right, um, rising, almost said uh, breaking points with Crystal and Sagar. I watch them every single day. I click on that link as soon as it hits my inbox. Um, they're so brilliant and generous and 
populists. And I, I really think that they're doing excellent, excellent work. Um, I think, you know, in terms of look, in terms of the political polarization, in terms of straight reporting of the news, the Wall Street Journal, I think, is still doing a good job. They're not inventing polarities that don't really exist. Of course, it's really funny because the Wall Street Journal is for like, you know, the rich, you know, it's one of the few place, two outlets that have a, a, um, a readership that's more affluent and more educated than the New York Times. It's The Economist and the Wall Street Journal, right? Um, but unlike the New York Times, the New York Times is essentially now sensationalism for the rich, you know, and and um, and the Wall Street Journal hasn't is not doing that. Th- uh, thank you, John. Appreciate it. Mark, what is up? Hi, thanks so much for this book and this conversation. I especially enjoyed like some of the historical context that you provided, which was like very informative to me. Isn't that it? stuff was I found that stuff so. Thank you yeah. so. Much. Um, one thing I took away from your book and uh, this conversation is that the loss of um, objectivity in places like the New York Times is maybe less of a primary problem than the lack of a voice for the working class. And as you say in chapter five, you know, the problem with today's media is not that it's partisan, but who it's partisan for. So, like, suppose we reached the point where the working class had a you know, prominent voice in the press. Do you think restoring objectivity and like sort of descriptivism as opposed to analysis in the mainstream press is like still an important goal in and of it? That is such a great question. <laughs> um, because how could I say no? But on the other hand, like most of my book is arguing like that as long as everybody's represented, it's not such a big deal if each side has its slant. And I'll give you an example from um, a strange, maybe seeming um, side area. And Jesse, I'm really curious what you think about this. So um, you hear a lot of people often complaining that when it comes to, for example, anti-Semitism, you know, the right will only call it out when it's on the left and the left will only call it out when it's on the right and no one will call it out when it's in their own camp. But to me, that means that 100% of anti-Semitic uh, episodes are being called out. So I don't know that that's a pro. I don't know that I need each side to be, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, as long as like the issue is being spoken to and the public sphere has a representation, you know, collectively in its ecosystem, of everything that matters. I don't, I'm not sure, you know, if it's super important that each person, you know, encapsulates every single part of every single issue. What do you think, Jesse? That's interesting. I mean, I can see the argument for that. I, I also, I think a lot of what I'm lamenting these days is like the loss of sort of basic shared journalistic values or even just values with regard to like honesty and conduct. So in a perfect world, uh, everyone would agree somewhat on what isn't is an anti-Semitism, but I, I think both sides come up with like sometimes convincing to some reasons to to ignore it when it pops up in ways that aren't aren't convenient for. Um, anyway, uh, anything else, Mark? No. Thank you for calling. It's not my fault. How is it going? It's going pretty good. Um, a couple of callers ago, uh, you suggested that um, maybe it would be in people's best interest if there were a consumer boycott of upper class journalists. Maybe like a, a consumer revolt in the interests of the uh, the audience instead of in the interests of the advertisers and the sort of ruling elite class. Yeah, yeah, I think you're already seeing some of that. I mean, if you look at CNN's numbers, they're really pretty much in the toilet right now. Um, so, and I think that that kind of a consumer boycott is great because I think we consume too much news. I think uh, Jesse covered a, a similar consumer revolt at one point. Um, I also wanted to sort of uh, tie into um, 
Andrew Yang's first book, which I think has a lot of uh, similar themes. It's smart people should build things. And he's basically talking about how he sees this sort of giant treadmill that funnels Ivy Leaguers into law schools and Wall Street finance. And they see it as a sort of no risk pathway into money and prestige in fun cities. And he sees this as kind of like a, a centralized rent seeking enterprise that scoops up solid talent and then keeps it away from uh, what he would see as a, uh, a wealth creation distributed um, growth and research uh, sector that um, I guess. So the, que the question is, is this idea of where um, rich kids what, get what pulled and where they put their. Right. Uh, I guess if we're, we're seeing journalism also be a, uh, I guess, scooping up all the smart people from Ivy Leagues and then putting them to work for the interests of the already wealthy. Uh, Andrew Yang's solution is to have a startup that creates startups all across the country. <laughs> and then I'm not sure what, what your solution would be. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm i sort of a little bit hesitant, you know, when you hear people from the tech world or people, you know, suggesting that the answer is some uh, someone from a different elite coming in and kind of, you know, figuring things out. I, I think that the answer, the good answers usually come from the people because I'm a populist. And um, so I, I think that the, you know, a, you know, a good answer that I think is not going to happen would be for every newsroom that's, you know, newsrooms are very focused on racial diversity right now, which is really good and really important. The problem is, is it doesn't really solve the problem. So America's newsrooms today are embarrassingly white. That is true. But the reason that they are so, you know, embarrassingly white is because they are so embarrassingly rich. And America's rich happen to be embarrassingly white. Um, so it's very important that we have more diverse elites. That's extremely important. You know, every, you know, budding Einstein in a minority community or in a working class community should have the opportunity to rise. But I very much think, you know, that begs the question of what about everybody else who's who's not brilliant, who's not a budding Einstein, who doesn't want to go to college, who, you know, who maybe doesn't want to study, who maybe doesn't want to, you know, become some sort of genius. Shouldn't they be entitled to you know, a decent living as well and a dignified life. And um, I, I think, you know, one thing that if, if newspapers were serious or, if, you know, you know, news channels were serious about this, you know, turning this boat around, they could be recruiting from working class neighborhoods, recruiting from, you know, state schools, community colleges, even high schools. I mean, the, this, the dirty secret about journalism is it's one of the most highly educated industries in America. 92% plus of journalists have a college degree. The majority have uh, a graduate degree, but you actually can't teach journalism. Like these are vanity degrees. They're teaching them. They're giving them the skills to, to network with other rich elites. Like you can't teach someone how to be a good listener. You can't teach someone how to question their biases. You can't teach somebody, you know, when they can say, okay, I've interviewed 10 people. I can now generalize about something. I've interviewed 20 people. When is it enough? You just can't teach that stuff. And they certainly aren't teaching that stuff. So I feel like, you know, the, the, it's part of a larger problem, which is, you know, I like to say my book is about contempt. It's about the contempt that elites have, you know, edu highly educated people have for people who don't have that bookish learning. And we've lost the ability to respect people whose talent, you know, comes from something else from exactly like you said, from building. The only thing I'd add to that is I think an important part of the equation here is that a lot of 
elite colleges have absolutely figured out ways to make their classes more racially diverse. But the, the New York Times has this great data visualization tool where you can see both the racial and the socioeconomic demographics. And the the level of inequality, I think, has only grown over time uh, among the top schools and even down into like sort of good some good public universities. So I think it lets outlets off the hook because they have superficially, increasingly superficially diverse newsrooms. And I'd prefer that to white dominated newsrooms, but it's still all folks from the same schools uh, and from the same values. Um, anyway, thank you for the call. It's not my fault. Andrew, you are next. Hey, Jesse and Raja, thanks for taking my call. Um, I was wondering um, on a personal level, how much of this when you're actually speaking with these people seems to be affected? Um, just as a, for instance, like when you see on Twitter, someone will say something along the lines of like, oh, I was talking to you know my toddler about the Libra rate. Um, it's so obvious what we should be doing here. I, I just, I, I don't imagine that person in their own mind is genuine, but maybe I'm wrong about that. So I, I'm just curious if um, what your experience has been and that does it, at least anyone else ever look at those people sideways and sideways and say like that. You go first, buddy. I'm curious. <laughs> um, yeah, it's always weird because I also feel like Twitter is such a cesspool. Like, why would you introduce even as a character your child into this like horrible <laughs> place to get like beat down by like hundreds of thousands of people? Um, I, I I think that um, yeah, I would take stuff like that with a grain of salt. What do you think, Jesse? Yeah, I, I I just think Twitter incentivizes lying. I mean, the other maybe the the other more broad way to look at this was I um. I got dinner fairly recently with a fellow journalist and we were talking about another instance, not the Tom Cotton one where a bunch of journalists, um, it was basically when Matt Iglesias signed the Harper's letter and it was determined that this was harmful mm -hmm. to his trans colleague at Vox, which is just a, a ridiculous thing to think on so many levels. And you saw a lot of mainstream journalists uh, who seemed to think this, that Iglesias had harmed his colleague by putting his name on a, milk toast uh free speech letter or, or liberal values letter and uh what my dinner companion and i were talking about is like which is worse if if this many journalists actually believe this or this many journalists feel social or professional pressure to pretend to believe this and I, i'm not sure which is the end yeah i i I, one of the criticisms of the book that I get a lot is people say you make it sound like they are intentionally amplifying issues of race in order to line their pockets. And um, there were moments where I think I lost narrative control of the voice because I, I feel so angry about all of this. Um, and I made it sound like it was intentional. I don't think it's intentional most of the time. So I would err on the side of believing that these people did do sincerely believe that him signing that letter caused some equivalent of harm because it hurt their feelings. And because in universities, they're taught that, you know, speech is, is violence and violence is silence or whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever the saying is. Um, but I so I would I would always err on the side of you know, ascribing the best of intentions, especially somebody who I myself was woke, you know, so I was in it. And I remember feeling those feelings, and they feel really strong. Um, but at the same time, while these people do think that they are sort of, you know, doing the right thing, bending the moral arc of the universe towards justice, at the same time, it is indisputable to me that they're, you know, they are lining their pockets with it, both at a corporate level and at an individual level, you know, journalists were not supposed to be this rich. And so it's, it's really your question is really well taken, Andrew, like, because I, I think that it really is both like, on the one hand, they are 
you know, truly, truly genuine. And on the other hand, I think, you know, it is truly, truly in their economic interests to divert attention from the very real class divide and the very deplorable levels of income inequality in America and divert it to, you know, a racial moral panic around issues that are just no longer, you know, we're no longer divided over as Americans. Does that, uh, is that what you're getting at, Andrew? Uh, yeah, that, that I, I, I'd almost hope that it was some sort of like recursive loop that everyone was stuck in where they were just afraid to be the first person to say the emperor had no clothes. But um, I, I was worried that what Bacha said, but it is, it is genuine. Yeah. I'll, give, I'll give you one example that I think is really telling because it had a very deep impact on me. So so um, I'm sure everybody remembers when uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went to the Met Gala and wore this dress, you know, that had this like cheeky slogan on the back, tax the rich, right? And, you know, it was such a perfect embodiment of, you know, I, I joked that if she had done that before my book came out, I wouldn't have had to write it because it was such a perfect embodiment of, you know, what I'm talking about, which is, um, you know, somebody, you know, who is herself makes almost $200,000 a year going to the apotheosis of conspicuous consumption with this slogan acting like this is some brave, act, heroic act, you know, dangerous act going into the lion's den when actually, you know, every single person at the Met Gala would be more than happy to pay higher taxes, right? Like they're right. all liberals. They all believe in taxing the rich. You know, they are so obscenely wealthy that they're like, just, just tell me how much to pay. I'm happy to pay whatever tax bracket you think it's fair. Um, and, you know, it seemed like such a cynical act but what happened was two days later, a video came out that um, AOC had filmed with Vogue while preparing for the Met Gala. And so you could see where her mind was at while she was preparing for this event. And, you know, she got she got skewered on both sides of the political aisle for, for going and for wearing the dress, etc. But, you know, in this video, you could see how deeply she believes that this was, you know, a revolutionary act and that it was so sincere in her mind that this was like this was going to be the thing that was going to change everything, you know, and it was such an important moment for me, because it really reminded me that, you know, how much these people believe it. And, and, you know, Yuval Levin has this amazing quote, where he says, you know, Washington would be a much easier place to navigate if everybody showed up and was like, I'm gonna make so much money and get so much power, right? But (laughs) Mr. Burns style, exactly. But everyone shows up and says, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna heal the world, I'm gonna, you know, bring real change and justice. And that's what makes it so difficult. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate the call. Yasarian, what is up? How's it going, Jesse? Good. Glad to hear it. Um, so hopefully this isn't treading ground that you guys have already covered, but I've had to step out of the conversation a couple times. But um, this comment slash question, and, and Jesse, it calls to mind something about what um, Alice Gribben was mentioned a couple of times when you had her on about sort of the influence of the academy on the discipline and doesn't it strike it's it strikes me that you know this the increasing emphasis on academic credentialism as part of journalism and the rise of you know getting a master's in journalism you know um is a big piece of this and the the in this obviously touches on like the sheer cost involved in getting uh, a degree but especially you know once you start in the master's uh fields the the insane costs associated with that so to get a master's in journalism whatever professional advantage that conveys isn't of itself sort of this gatekeeping and then with respect to what alice was talking about in the fields of visual art poetry fiction um 
isn't journalism subject to the same phenomenon? Isn't this academia colonizing or parasitizing um, the profession of journalism? And you get this sort of rent seeking, both like from a, a monetary perspective and the amounts that the both the, the professoriate and then the, the administrative class charge these people to get these degrees. But then it's also ideological rent seeking in that you have to give up, you know, if you're a parent paying for this, you have to surrender your child and their education and their mind to this system. And so I would just be curious to get both of your reflections and say if, if this is, if I'm totally off base or if this is something that you see happening in the world of journalism. Go for um, that was so eloquent and a little bit above, um, ab above my, <laughs> um, I, I've never heard the phrase rent seeking used that way, but I can sort of understand what you're saying. And I think it's really smart and really brilliant. And I think I'm actually probably complicit in it as a person who got a PhD and then became a journalist, right? I think that's what you're talking about, where academia produces all of this, you know, all of these unemployed people who then have to sort of colonize this other industry. Is that what you mean? That's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it does seem with the rise of the administrative class in the universities, which I think is yeah. both an ideological problem and is also one of the things I don't I mean, I've seen I have some anecdotal data on it, but my strong suspicion is one of the reasons that college tuition is far outstripping the rate of inflation and just costs so such an absurd amount is, is the the rise of the administrative class who are people who may not be equipped to or may not want to compete in the the neoliberal capitalist job marketplace. And so they wind up, the universities wind up making room for these people. And then some, but those who are more successful are subject to that same ideological uh, approach in the universities and then sent, sent out into the worlds of journalism. Right. And, and journalism is so uniquely important because, you know, it is the the gatekeeping of quote unquote truth and the first draft of history. And just from my perspective, so much of, of mainstream journalism these days is just driven by narrative. It's what, what fits the narrative is flogged. What doesn't fit is ignored or worse. It's twisted to fit. So Kyle Rittenhouse becomes a white supremacist and the Covington thing becomes, you know, anyway, I'm, I, I don't mean to, to go off in, in random directions, but those are just. No, no, it's it, it's really smart. And I think it's you bring up an interesting point. It's like when Alan Bloom wrote his book, The Closing of the American Mind, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, OK, that's interesting. That's uh, well, it sucks for academia. Right. But like, whatever, you're in your ivory tower. Who really cares? <laughs> like, what are the stakes really, you know, of the ivory tower becoming closed minded? But I think you're totally right that as those values, you know, as that mindset has spread and become mainstreamed through the media, you know, you're now seeing you know much much bigger repercussions because the media sets the agenda for our political class what do you think jesse um i have a lot of conflicting thoughts on this but i'm gonna punt on it just because you have to go in 10 minutes right patya oh, all right i do, I do you sorry not i'm sorry about this i just want to get through as many of the remaining callers as possible there was a really good no, question no, that's, and that's, I, I gotta think about that understood thanks jesse thanks, thanks. let's go uh e i apologize that's lower casey you're the nice caller. Yes, uh, lower Casey. Thank you. Um, so this is for Baya, but you know you can both answer if you want. Um, I'm a college student, um, and this is going to be pretty anecdotal. But I always kind of find it funny when, like, especially people on the right, talk about you know how you know they 
on one hand, in like the same sentence, they'll talk about crazy college students and then talk about Nancy Pelosi as though, you know, like we care about that. And I, I think, you know, it, to my view, there's still a very strong, at least in the people that I associate with, and I am friends with mostly very liberal people, but there's still a very strong sentiment of like anti-establishment um, kind of uh, stuff. Um, so I'm just wondering like if that maps on to what to your view of things. I mean, I, I guess as an example, like I don't, I don't think anybody that I'm friends with has any real respect for CNN. And I don't think any of them, you know, if, if I said to one of my friends or if I was in a, a room full of college students and I said, you know, CNN is a corrupt organization, I think most people would be like, yeah, absolutely. Like, obviously. So I'm just wondering if, if that maps on to. Um, so lowercase e, that's a really great question. Um, what I would say is you don't respect CNN, but CNN respects you. So CNN is, you know, is speaking to people who live in fear of what you think. Um, and, um, and in terms of anti-establishment, I think, I think the problem is that our liberal uh, monoculture, our establishment is very anti-establishment. So um, for example, you know, like I'm sure you and a lot of your friends support things like student loan forgiveness, which is, you know, portrayed by people like the squad as this kind of anti-establishment, like revolutionary, um, it, you know, impulse when actually it's, it's, you know, it's quite the opposite, right? It's a, it's a bailout for, you know, the elites, for people who, who have a huge head start in terms of, um, you know, their opportunities. So I think, you know, the, the problem is, is that for me, and I say this with a lot of respect, because I don't know what your views are, and I don't know what your friends views are. But, um, you know, I think what starts or what feels revolutionary in college, by the time it filters up to the squad, and then up through the squad to CNN, and then from CNN, to your parents, you know, there's almost a closed loop there where suddenly you have someone like Chuck Schumer pushing things like, you know, that would be considered within a college educated set as very anti-establishment, but are actually attacks on the working class. So uh, that's what I would say. And again, I say this with a lot of humility because I don't know you and I don't know what you think. But um, so so my critique is very much of the way in which we all sort of have a college mindset um, and um, the ways in which things that, you know, seem like like they're countercultural, they seem revolutionary, you know, they end up as banners on Amazon. Um, so that, that, yeah, that would be my. Uh, that makes sense. Anything else? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mostly agree with that. I, I, I like what you said mostly because, you know, like that's the kind of nuance I think people are missing. I, I think that's exactly what's happening. I, I don't think, you know, CNN is making money off of, off of me. I think right, that, right, you know, right people like me are primary dri primarily driving the culture right now and, and CNN is just following along. Thank you, E. Appreciate it. Uh, last caller will be my Twitter buddy, JD. How's it going, JD? JD, you're going to want to uh, unmute yourself. Oh, no, I want to take JD's question. Um, well, I can do a, a, a winding wrap up and then maybe JD can uh, unmute himself in the meantime. But Bacha, I really appreciate you coming on. And um, yeah, I think this is a really good book. I, I would recommend anyone listening to this who hasn't read it, uh, read it. Um, uh, yeah. Do you have any other closing thoughts, Bacha? 
Well, no, I just want to thank you again, Jesse, for everything that you do in this space, on Twitter, in your journalism, in, in truth telling. I mean, you really are kind of, uh, to me, you're kind of like an old school journalist where you seem to really care about like what actually happened. But moreover, um, the, 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 the thing that your presence does in terms of anchoring our really, really flawed, our spiritually flawed industry to some sort of higher cause. And, um, and I mean, like, even in a very pedestrian pedestrian way being kind and good um i I, and virtuous i can't thank you enough for that jesse and for thank for having me on here and exposing me to your your very devoted following so thank you for everything (laughs) (laughs) that is very kind of you to say and i I really appreciate it and uh yeah have a good night um as for everyone else thank you guys so much for listening um yeah, the best thing you can do if you like this show, if you like what I'm doing, is to spread the word. Ask other people to join Colin. There's a lot of good stuff, I think, in the back catalog. Uh, but yeah, you can always feel free to send me an email. Uh, I'm not hard to find. You can also send me a message on here if you have any suggestions of future guests or of topics to cover. But I think that's it for now. And I hope you all have a good night wherever you are. And thank you very much for tuning in. Farewell. <laughs>